Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I welcome to the SASPOD Robert Raykov. He is a historian who studies US foreign relations, focusing particularly on the Cold War era. He is a lecturer in the Stanford program in international relations and has previously taught at Colgate University and Old Dominion University. His first book, Kennedy, Johnson and the Non-Aligned World, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. And today we will be talking about his second book, Days of Opportunity, the United States and Afghanistan before the Soviet invasion, which has just been published by Columbia University Press. Now, before I go into my conversation with Rob, I want to just mention that this will be the last episode for a little while from the SASPOD. We're going to take a little break. Um, and so I would like to encourage all our listeners to follow and subscribe, and you will get notifications uh, of future episodes as soon as they drop. Uh, with that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, Rob, welcome to the SASPOD. How are you? Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm great. I'm happy to discuss my uh, book here. Yeah, we're excited to hear about it. Hot off the press. Um, I always like to start by asking my guests what they would like our listeners to know about them. So please introduce yourself. Well, I've just wrapped up my 11th year of uh, teaching within the Stanford International Relations Program, although I took a couple of quarters off during, as it would happen, the peak of the pandemic. And so I'm really forever uncertain as to how exactly to quantify my time here. But I'm a U.S. historian and a diplomatic historian by training. I completed my master's and my Ph.D. at the University of Virginia now about 15 years ago when I actually <laughs> started my, yeah, I, I started my graduate study there almost 20 years ago. So it's, it's really anniversaries are just going to be kind of the perennial note uh, of this conversation, I think. Uh, I'm topically most at home studying US foreign relations. I, I trained to cover the 20th century. In my own research, I tend to look at the Cold War era and US policy in what was then uh, known as the third world in the political sense, the non-aligned world, uh, what we now call the global south. Obviously, third world carries a lot of very pejorative freight with it. Almost all usage that you'd encounter of it today bears that freight. And my bread and butter for research tends to be government archives, diplomatic archives. With this book, also with the previous book, I spent a lot of time uh, in U.S. and foreign government sources, really uh, delving into uh, diplomatic records and then complementing them ideally with work in other collections, often private paper collections. 
my um, first book I should just mention kind of parenthetically because I sort of see it as, as in some ways an important prologue to this. I looked broadly at U.S. policy toward non-aligned countries in the 60s. It was a broad study of, U of U.S. efforts to engage uh, non-aligned countries in a confined space of time. And so one of the seeds leading to this book was thinking, well, what about changing the parameters here? Look at one relationship over a really long span of time, especially a, a country that maintained its non-alignment for a while. Uh, and Afghanistan's a terrific example in that case. Can I just ask you about the the, the phrase non-aligned world? Because um, you seem to say that it's a, a another way of saying what used to be the third world. Is, is that so who are non-aligned places not aligned with? In a Cold War context, that basically means they've stayed averse, uh, they've stayed out of uh, overt alignment with either superpower, with either bloc. That doesn't mean that they're pursuing a strict neutrality. Uh, we tend to think of Swiss neutrality as the gold standard, but uh, that's one of any number of flavors of neutrality. Non-aligned states could often be quite vocal about issues that concern them, about economic issues, especially about anti-colonialism. Uh, and Afghanistan had that uh, tendency, although it had an, an earlier tendency toward non-alignment. The phrase, uh, I, I'm not fluent in this, but the, 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 the Persian and Dari phrase is bitarafi, I believe, being basically without sides. Yeah. And they had practiced something like this during both of the world wars and had a kind of quiet confidence. And one encounters in their discussion about the actual non-aligned movement that came about in the 1960s that these other countries were relative newcomers. They've, they've been doing this for generations and the other countries could really take lessons from them. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, I want to also ask you about your sources. So um, government, non-government and diplomatic, is that what you said? Um, can you say more about, um, I'm always very uh, curious where historians do their work, like in the field of South Asia, historians spend a lot of time in London, uh, in the the British Library, and everybody thinks of horror to those see-through plastic bags, and <laughs> God forbid they catch you with chewing gum. Um, <laughs> Where do you spend most of your time? Where are these sources? And what makes the sources um, in relation to Afghanistan particularly complicated? This book involved a lot of time in a not especially loved but indispensable archive, the U.S. National Archives in College Park, Maryland, also known as Archives 2, because this is the industrial-sized archive. It's not the pretty place where they have the Declaration of Independence and presumably Nicolas Cage. Um, it's a place that's, that, that delivers records to you in bulk, and they're you know, they're tremendous. The ordering system can be a little convoluted. They're often quite short-staffed, and they have a lot of institutional difficulties uh, I could probably relay at a different point, uh, but it's just the, the, the quantity of, of documents, the quantity of records from across the federal government, it's, it's as the phrase often goes, it's like opening a fire hose, basically, and then trying to contend with it. Mm -hmm. um, that's the best single example. Otherwise, I might spend time at presidential libraries. Um, one place that really kind of hit above its value, though, was a private collection or university collection at this peculiar place called the American Heritage Center in Laramie, Wyoming, which is a very well-stocked archive that's in the structure. I believe it's designed to emulate a teepee. Um, it's about a 
I don't know, a mile or two from the main from the campus of the University of Wyoming, and they had a lot of great private papers, uh, including the in indispensable records of geologists who'd visited Afghanistan in the 1940s, um, who often, I think, kind of captured a window on this brief kind of opportunistic phase of U.S. interactions uh, in the country. Um, and that was great, too. I, I, I spent four days there now a number of years ago and, and was delighted that I went there. It, 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 it offered kind of, it was it was great in a way that I hadn't expected it and hadn't even looked to, uh, for it to be. I mean, my approach to research is to try to get as many documents as possible, basically to vacuum them up in the era of the digital camera at this point, the, the cell phone app, and then just kind of really get immersive at the drafting phase, uh, really kind of find, look look at everything I can find that I think is pertinent. And it's a sort of strange immersive process. And I actually find that it's it's difficult to kind of reconstruct fully um, how it worked after the fact, what I was looking at at the time and how the sort of records were pinging off of each other, but records that I just kind of photographed casually in a hurry in spring of 2015 would be kind of, would have a kind of smoking gun mm -hmm. uh, importance. Um, and fortunately in a chapter I didn't send to you, but in, in, a, in, in one of the chapters of the book demonstrating fundamental problems with the, with the main US development project in Afghanistan even before it went forward. So for our non-historian listeners, um, what does the source look like? Are these letters? Are these briefs? Are these, what, what are you actually looking at? And is any of this stuff, um, was it classified before? Do you get special access because you're a researcher? Um, say a little bit more about that, if you will. It's the broad gamut. The median document, or mm, median isn't the right term, but they're, they're kind of probably the most cited type of record I have in this are diplomatic cables. And that's that can seem terribly dry, but once you just think about this as beat reporting, a sort of day-to-day -day reporting by diplomats, it's intended to just vacuum up uh, observations. And it's very often very tentative. Mm. There's, you know, bias can be a factor, but these folks are not going to try too hard to reach a conclusion on incomplete evidence. They're going to try to pass things back and not filter very much. So often, you'll get a pretty decent effort to recapitulate an entire conversation as they had it sometimes. And sometimes they just sort of shrug at the end and say, well, this is what I heard, make of it what you will. That can often be the sort of the most common, uh, and often it, it, those are not he heavily classified. They're often those just kind of work on a day-to-day -day basis. There's long form, the stuff that sort of went out in the diplomatic bag, as it were. I don't know if, the, if there really is much of a diplomatic bag these days. Shorter form, there was telegraph. Now, of course, they're emailed. But then also letters. Uh, classification could be an issue at some points in time, but sufficient time has passed so that it didn't much affect my earlier chapters. Some painful exceptions exist to this. I completed the book without ever getting records from the Eisenhower Library declassified, and I really would have liked to see those. Those were NSC discussions um, that related to Afghanistan. I got they were mostly out. I think I have a decent guess as to what's in the gaps, uh, what 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 sort of the redacted text was because of the the, the surrounding conversation. But it'll be a regret of mine. But I you, you can't wait on that when you're when you're working on a book. Uh, I was told over email, I got this re request a few weeks ago, that there's a 10-year queue on a request that I actually don't even remember placing at the Kennedy Library. So at this point, it's basically, 
it's a death sentence to a project to wait yeah. on, on right. that process now because of how badly funded it all is. But uh, I guess at some point in the future, you can have the uncut version and then, you know, add that. <laughs> there are ways to loop it in, uh, in, in a kind of ex post facto way. So I, the, the advice that people will, will give you in my field entirely is, is don't wait to see everything. It'll never, it, it won't happen for you. You have to make your best conclusion on the basis of, of evidence that may remain partial. I was just very fortunate that a good record of the Carter years emerged. That's still the very sensitive phase of the of of the book, even and and Carter Library records have very significant gaps in them. More than forty years after the fact, it's 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 within my little world. It's scandalous how slowly the the process is moving, but it's been it's been losing steam for a lot of time. So speaking of things that affect uh, the the timing of a book, and I think we all as writers like at some point you just have to decide that the research is done now because there's always another thing to add um but we are um coincidentally really uh recording on the second anniversary of the u.s withdrawal from afghanistan um so you mentioned 2015 so i guess two years ago you were already working on this book I wonder how your research and your angle affected by by what ended up transpiring in afghanistan two years ago mm -hmm. Uh, two years ago, I personally was making some headway on the final chapter, which had slid a bit back in my, my personal timeline for completing the book uh, amid the pandemic and everything else. Um, it didn't have a great effect simply because my sense of the ensuing tragedy was already tremendous, and I was determined not to say very much about the 40 years following uh the end of chapter 10 i i was and this is this was something i really wrestled with because i just simply wouldn't be able to cover it in the same depth it would mean a book of 300,000 words rather than a mere 160,000 years nice. <laughs> um so it was material I was I was already kind of determined to go over lightly but of course it was horrendous it it and it seemed in ways that I don't really elucidate to dovetail with earlier misbegotten efforts to construct this very centralized, capital-intensive uh, Afghan state. It, in, in, in that sense, it's, it seemed very much a sequel to what had come before. And I doubt that there were very many people present in Washington in the early part of the century who had meaningful recollection of earlier US efforts uh, mm -hmm. in Afghanistan and I think also the country's reputation seems to precede it so that policymakers will not plan on accomplishing very much, will make very modest plans, underfund them, and then pat themselves on the back and say, well, we tried. Uh, for me, it was also a poignant and, and sad anniversary in that it was 100 years since the opening of U.S.-Afghan relations, which occurred over the summer of 1921 as an intrepid literally globe-trotting delegation landed in New York Harbor, I want to say in July, and made their way to uh, to Washington to meet President Harding. And this really kind of peculiar chain of events that I chronicle in my opening chapter, they were able to, by virtue of that meeting, open relations, but they didn't get what they wanted, which was a full-fledged relationship involving a U.S. diplomatic property in Kabul. The, 20 years would pass. Um, by that point, the lead diplomat in that mission would have been executed. Uh, he was a loyalist to the Afghan king, Amanullah, 
and he didn't survive the change of regime in the late 20s. Uh, and and the, the poignance of this collapse happening close to, to that prior uh, milestone, as it, as it were, was also painful. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, as a historian, you have so many. You have your 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 view is so much broader than um, for those of us who stay more within the kind of contemporary media. Um, your book. I'm just going to repeat the title here: uh, "Days of Opportunity: The United States and Afghanistan Before the Soviet Invasion." Um, why why this book? I, I wonder what you feel was missing from existing scholarship on Afghanistan. As a point of comparison within my field, one might think about the state of U.S. studies of the Vietnam War. There's a rich array of books looking at the United States in Vietnam or the United States in French Indochina in the years preceding, you know, say the early 1960s. There was a there's a very influential book that takes that story back to 1919, for example, by a scholar named Mark Philip Bradley. And I had noted that there just wasn't that kind of effort. Uh, with the United States and Afghanistan, it it didn't seem to have happened. There's a, there's one very notable exception. A number of scholars have pursued development, and the country is just rich with case studies of development. Many more could be written. The work is nowhere near completed. There are some really terrific studies uh, of throughout uh, work by the historian Nick Colather, the aviation historian Jennifer Van Vleck. There's a, a really neat book about anti-narcotics efforts, um, not just in the 1970s by a scholar named James Theron Bradford. I'm just really skimming off the top here. There's 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 more as I there's there's more that I could that I could reference. And they're remedying this problem kind of topic by topic, but we lacked, as I saw it, an up-to-date diplomatic history of the United States and Afghanistan up to the collapse, up to 1978-1979. Obviously there's there's much more attention Thereafter, with the Soviet War, I think the 90s are somewhat less studied. But then, of course, once uh, bin Laden was installed, then we're, uh, topically speaking, off to the races. There's, there's, there's considerable attention. There was also, I think, within Cold War studies, and you know, bearing the above development caveat, a lack of, of work on, on Afghanistan. Uh, again, there, there are key exceptions occur, especially including uh, Timothy Noonan's uh, great book on development in Afghanistan, which has the virtue of going into the 1980s and, and beyond, and, and it has really irreplaceable, unique research, a lot of oral history conducted by Tim, who's a good friend of mine, uh, I believe, in Central Asia, sometimes, in, sometimes over the telephone, uh, with, with alums of the Soviet program there. But Generally speaking, once again, there's not that much coverage before it becomes an outright battle zone. Whereas actually my conviction is it's among the third world battle zones where, where the contest is symbolic, it's being waged in terms of political warfare, of aid programs of diplomacy, Afghanistan is pretty significant. The Soviets felt very determined to contest it. The Americans felt that they couldn't quite lose it. They couldn't win it either because geography put them at a profound disadvantage and they took the measure of the Soviet commitment early and realized there really wasn't a way to play to a win there but they had to stay in the game at the very at the very least they they couldn't um they could not lose uh which put them into this kind of paradoxical situation 
where they could be both intimidated by the scope of the Soviet program, but also worry that if they tried to catch it, if they tried to match it um, dollar for ruble, I guess, as it were, then that would actually prompt the Soviets to escalate further in a way that they could not match. Okay. Scholars had noted the disparity between US and Soviet efforts. There are just massive Soviet engineering uh, projects within Afghanistan, the Kabul airport for one, uh, the Salong Pass Tunnel north of Kabul, which historically connected the capital to the lands in the north. And there was a tendency not entirely undone at this point in the scholarship by people who'd witnessed the contest to write about Americans losing the race to kind of contribute to a who lost Afghanistan discourse, which of course for them was very pained. Um, obviously it, it occurred against the backdrop of the 1980s and beyond. And of course they could note that there had not been much Afghan enthusiasm for the Soviets, that Afghan leaders had really expressed interest in joining the Western Alliance at different points in time, but had been turned aside. But I think, I think the story is more complicated. And my contribution is to say, well, it's the US program was much more consequential than that. The United States was a very meaningful participant. And unfortunately, it wasn't that it didn't match the Soviets in Afghanistan, but the interplay of the US program and the Soviet program contributed not wittingly, certainly not intentionally to the destabilization of Afghanistan over the course of this time period, creating a vacuum that, that could actually become a violent Cold War battleground. And the great and terrible irony here is that both blocs at sober moments thought that the status quo in Kabul, especially in the 1960s, was fine. They did not need the, the contest to escalate a neutral global South buffer state was completely acceptable to the both of them. Neither thought that they could achieve great things there. And if they'd been able to kind of maintain that consensus, it could have had a form a more formalized uh, status, perhaps not a la treaty like say Austria or something like that, but at, at least the, the two sides could have kept out of each other's way. Right. Um, you mentioned geography, and I want to ask you about that. But uh, before I do so, um, I want to just ask you about a phrase that you use in the book, which is, um, quote, unquote, pre-cataclysm Afghanistan. I don't know that I've ever said the word cataclysm before. Um, pre-cataclysm Afghanistan, what do you mean by that? I treat the events of 1978, 1979, and afterward as exceptional, as transforming Afghanistan irrevocably for their immediate timeline. I don't want to say that their effect cannot ever be undone, but destroying any kind of Afghan state with any sort of domestic legitimacy, fracturing the country, creating a civil war that has raged in different iterations onward uh, to 2021, and maybe perhaps still today, de you know, depending on the extent of, of current resistance to the Taliban. Mm -hmm. I. Uh, lead the intro with that quote uh, from the Magic Mountain describing a kind of bright line between the events I chronicle and our present, and, and that bright line, of course, being the war. Obviously, I'm butchering Thomas Mann's prose right now, but, the, but you take the point. Uh, and I think an important purpose of the book was to really, really push back on the image of Afghanistan as perennial, permanent battleground. Yeah. is to say, look, that was not always the country's fate. Yeah, There are some images that are sort of lassoed together. People just, people have the British wars of the 19th century. Isn't that nice? 
and then yeah. the Soviet war and onward. And, you know, well, there was actually quite a lot in between. There was actually just about a, you know, about a century in between. The, the country that I'm contending with in my time frame, which uh, really especially picks up with, with my coverage in the 1940s up until the late 1970s, is effectively at peace. It's It, it has a simmering, uh, largely though nonviolent border conflict with Pakistan. There's, I think, efforts in sort of unofficial warfare from time to time, but it's not engaged in anything like the kind of pitched conflict that Pakistan is, is having with, with India, for example. It has moments of domestic unrest, but this is a real this is a relatively quiet period. So periodically, one of my protagonists will sort of describe the country as relatively peaceful. It had relative political stability. The king uh, reigned. The, well, the principal monarch I contend with, uh, Zahir Shah, reigned, uh, although often kind of manipulated for a while, manipulated by his uncles uh, from 1933 until his ouster in 1973. The country attracted tourists. You could describe it fairly as something of an adventure tourism destination. It was the cover story of a, a mid-60s New York Times travel section. It, it's, a, it's a different country uh, in the time frame in which I'm contending with it. And observers around the turn of the 70s described it as a diplomatic success story. It's a country that had managed to leverage its position between the blocks very successfully. They didn't they didn't have great hope for the development programs. The Afghanistan was sort of seeded with very capital intensive programs that had not produced great benefits. And the US directed Helmand project in the South was really uh, exhibit A. But any one of these folks at the turn of the 1970s would have been just dumbstruck if you told them that it would become the Cold War battleground in about 10 to 15 years. That would have seemed bizarre to them and horrifying. That's so the, the the coup of the coup of 1978 and the Soviet intervention the following year. That's that for me that constitutes the cataclysm, the the the, the event that's been so difficult uh, to undo. That that and all of its myriad consequences. Sure, sure, sure. All right, great. Thank you so much. Um, I don't know if this is true, but in my to my mind, when I think about things I've read about Afghanistan, which are on the whole um, more recent than your work, but then also these kind of colonial um, narrations. I feel it's always referenced by its geopolitical location, but also its geography. So it's landlocked, it borders Pakistan, it borders Iran, it's uh, close to the Soviet Union. I, I wonder how important Afghanistan's place on the map is. Like, is it unique or... Um, are these colonial imaginaries that the caves, the mountain passes, it's all this terrain that we can't get to. Um, is there something real about all that or have we all been kind of hoodwinked by a certain way of looking at Afghanistan? Uh, to allude to my my great Stanford colleague, uh, Priya Satya, this may be a case where history is making history. Oh, I love that. The people are a little too invested in my timeline in Afghanistan's past. They mm. have this vision of it as a prior invasion route. Uh, they're thinking about Genghis Khan. They're reflecting a bit on the quote unquote great game, yeah. the 19th century. There is this conception of it as a potential invasion route into India, which you find especially in the 1950s. They really, the US policymakers really worried about that eventuality. I would say there is something real about the country having this kind of nebulous 
geographic identities. I noted the State Department never quite knew what geographic box to place it in. These days, it's in a bureau that deals with both South and Central Asia, which yeah. I suspect is more bureaucratic contrivance uh, than anything else. Uh, but that nebulousness lent itself to a lot of different, both notions of opportunity and threat scenarios. Americans had some attraction to it because they thought that Kabul, I encountered this argument being made in the late 30s and the early 40s, that a, a diplomatic property in Kabul could be a listening post on Soviet Central Asia, mm -hmm. which was like the dark side of the moon otherwise. Americans had no idea what was going on there oh. and what better place uh, to monitor it uh, than Afghanistan. It was also during the sec Second World War, a potential supply route into the Soviet Union. And admittedly, they had Iran, but they seemed to be covering every potentiality. And that was sort of the tie-breaking argument in terms of finally opening a diplomatic legation in Kabul, uh, basically two decades after that Afghan delegation had visited President Harding. But let it be noted that uh, east-west border, the, the Afghan Iranian border is also a, a source of interest because the Shah of Iran spoke a lot about it. A lot of work has been done on the Shah's foreign policy, but I think more in a kind of Middle Eastern orientation. He worried a lot about Afghanistan. Iran played a big role economically in the country in the mid-70s, possibly alarming the Soviet Union. And that was a threat scenario that the Shah took seriously because the Shah took that seriously, so did American policymakers who were determined to generally keep him happy. I don't, I mean, the caves, I think, are not such uh, an image I encounter. I think the caves in my book are abandoned mines that this one of my favorite protagonists sort of found himself digging into or you know, kind of walking or crawling into in the Panjshir Valley, which of course we have different associations with these days. Um, but Americans did think of this place as a potential buffer state and in their most fervid imaginings about the shape of the Cold War, it was the place to stop a Soviet offensive. Better to stop them among the mountains than to try to make a stand along the Duran line, along the Afghan-Pakistani border. And that scenario was something people had in mind. People had some notion, especially as the Soviets went forward. I don't want to overstate this because there are other calculuses at work that the Soviet intervention could be the first step of a move toward the Persian Gulf in, in, in the 1980s. There were certainly some people in the Reagan administration, not all of them, but, some, but certainly some of them who, who took that scenario very seriously and acted to forestall it. Similarly, um, you write of the emotional aspect, I love that phrase, emotional aspect of diplomacy. And you also write how truly likable the Afghan people are. And, of course, I, I don't dispute that uh, in any way, shape or form, to be clear, but I'm always curious about descriptions of uh, pretty much anywhere that's kind of not white European culture. The pe people are described as very hospitable, very curious, very friendly. Uh, do, they tr do you truly feel Afghanistan is in a league of its own in that regard? Because I hear it a lot. About, about Afghanistan? Yeah. That's interesting. I... um. I, 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 it's hard to qualify or quantify. Sure. I think most broadly speaking, one could say that they have more practice at diplomacy yeah. within the European imperial international system than a lot of their peers. Yeah. They were a suzerainty, but 
effectively independent as the 20th century dawned. They had to maintain a tenuous neutrality in both world wars. So they had great incentive mm -hmm. to really get this right. Um, and thus, I think, considerable experience uh, that many of their post-colonial peers elsewhere would be lacking as they attained independence after the Second World War. I'm at pains as well to further just push back against the martial image of, of, of Afghanistan to emphasize that actually the most important Afghan protagonists in my time frame aren't the soldiers, they aren't irregular warriors, they're diplomats. If you're a member of the Afghan elite in the mid 20th century, it is cold comfort to you that your country will put up great resistance against a foreign invader, which would of course be the Soviet Union. That's the dominant threat scenario that they had in mind. By that point in time, you personally would be exiled, imprisoned, or dead. So it's 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 not much of a relief. Diplomacy was their chief means of survival. Afghan diplomacy was was far far more important than any kind of storied uh, martial traits. And of course, those those martial traits were not ascribed to the Afghan military itself, which was itself a kind of product of of modernization with you know with at times sort of unreliable loyalties. Uh, but to many of the peoples in the in the Pashtun borderlands, especially, that's where you know, of course, where um, the ISI and, and and CIA would kind of invest their efforts most centrally in the 1980s. Uh, diplomacy was, you know, to, to recapitulate, you know, essential to Afghan survival. Um, Afghan hospitality seems to have been storied. I think uh, I think Americans were very susceptible to it. I think there's a special American susceptibility at work here for reasons that I only tentatively explore. They spoke about it very warmly. They they spoke after the fact about having very high morale in Kabul, that there was a kind of special bond that they, they would have. One of my protagonists, the ambassador, Henry Byrode, said there's something about the country that you just love. And Part of this, I think, may have related to the setting, it, lovely outdoor scenery. American diplomats had a penchant for hunting, and Afghans like to indulge that, you know, suggest one or another hunting excursion. Um, I should, of course, offer a caveat to that. I think there, there's some there's some traits about Americans, I think, that make them very receptive to Afghans. And I think the Afghan desire to retain independence is one that Americans who you know, see themselves as outsiders to the European imperial system, rightly or wrongly, they can empathize with that readily. Uh, but that Americans felt that well about the place also attests to the fact that they'd finally attained a level of material comfort there. In the 1940s, they weren't quite so happy. They, they had to argue for cost of living increases. There was a scarcity of housing. Everyone was coming down with amoebic dysentery. The State Department gave them their own aircraft. It gave them their own doctor. These were unusual fittings, but at that point in time, Kabul was uh, within the State Department, a hardship post and certain allowances had to be made. Once they had enough in the way of creature comforts, I think they could move on to the stage of, of truly enjoying the country. But as a contrast, uh, I spent a lot of time with British records. Britain obviously had much greater experience in the country and often greater insight the British did not feel so loved. <laughs> there was there was a difficult history between them and the Afghans that neither could entirely surmount. The British, I think, often had greater insights, though, 
and could be less giddy in their predictions about what could be accomplished in the country, even as they thought the Americans were once again sort of outplaying them and 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 uh, working to displace them. So there's there's a sort of British records present kind of an interesting challenge because they have they have insight. There's a lot of institutional experience that Americans just simply don't have, but then also a lot of ingrained hard feeling and and uh, and, and a greater degree of of animus. Uh, among the British diplomats in Kabul. So they, they make for interesting reading in that sense. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Before we wrap up, uh, I need to end with a very timely and extremely important question. Barbie or Oppenheimer? Uh, I've seen Oppenheimer twice thus far. <laughs> I wouldn't rule out a third screening, uh, which isn't to say I would say no to Barbie, you know, that, that I'd counsel your listeners to avoid that film but Oppenheimer is to me a solid contender for best picture I think it's a very important and uh enriching movie I enjoyed it very much I think it may well contend well because nothing's coming out right now uh, due to the strike that we uh we uh at the Sasspot wholeheartedly support um yeah I I did go and see Barbie and my review is uh, capitalism is wild and I will leave it at that. Uh, Rob Rako, thank you so much for coming on the Sasbot today to talk about the book that is coming out as we speak, published by Columbia University Press, Days of Opportunity, the United States and Afghanistan before the Soviet invasion. Thanks so much, Lilia. It's been great speaking with you. As always, I want to thank Simbrat Mataru for post-production and Soham Shiva for creating the intro and outro to the podcast. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.